Hey everybody, welcome to the next episode of the Strand Tennis Center podcast, filled with tips, advice, tennis, not tennis, just life advice too, whatever you need. Uh, like it on YouTube, share it on uh, the podcast as well. Thank you. Are you ready, Santi? Are you recording already? Okay, <laughs> Santi just puts it on. All right, everybody. But uh, we are got a new podcast here. This is a little different. Hillary's on the phone. Hillary Richie's the head coach of... Uh, Rutgers University girls team. There used to be a men's team. I used to play on it. It's there no more. But uh, they are in the Big Ten. We are lucky to have a Division One coach here just to get her perspective on everything. We're going to talk about so many different things with her. I probably will keep her too long, and she will be like, I have to have lunch. But I am happy to have her here. Uh, we had uh, Hillary. So, you know, we had uh, Caroline McGinley here, who was here two weeks ago, cl- committed, oh, to, who committed to Clemson, right? So, yes. Kids like that. And obviously, you know where everybody commits. And uh, I'm sure you know everybody's story before I do. Um, We try. We try. My first question to you is, what are the – give me some pros and cons. Like, what are the biggest challenges being a coach that is of a large conference but still kind of trying to, I guess, make your footing in the Big Ten with other other big names? Like, what are the biggest challenges for this? Sure. So first, you know, I think college coaching as a profession, I, I love my job and I get to interact, you know, with young adults every day and, and be around tennis, which I love. So I think there are a lot of fantastic things about the profession itself, but there are certainly challenges, as you mentioned, um, playing in a power five conference and playing against schools that have massive funding for facilities and, um, you know, support services, which Rutgers, fortunately, since we entered the Big Ten, they've been able to provide a lot of additional things that we didn't have previous, but you know, it is somewhat of an upward battle when you're competing against these, um, you know, longstanding programs and but it's a fun challenge to us. And, you know, we've been able to kind of ebb and flow and we, we sometimes take two steps forward and one step back. But one of the other challenges is in recruiting, just making sure that these players um, understand that, you know, what their lives are going to be like and how important the team dynamic and the coaching and, what ultimately impacts your happiness um, might not be what's necessarily bright and shiny on a recruiting trip. So recruiting is definitely a challenge of the job, making sure we're getting the right players, but um, they're fun challenges for me, ultimately. How is it in that room? Are you, do you feel more and more comfortable talking to parents? I mean, how, what do you think you're best at at this point? Do you still like the on-court more, or are you really getting good at recruiting, you think? So I, I love on-court. I mean, my the best part of my day is practice. I love being at practice, and match days are always very exciting. I feel good recruiting in terms of developing relationships with players. I um, I feel like because I was also a college tennis player, and I um, had maybe a unique journey from juniors and transferring to you know between two different Division One programs. I feel very comfortable connecting with student athletes. Um, parents too. I feel as though I can converse, and it's just really even convincing them that you know, showing them what Rutgers has to offer because it is a great school. But separating Rutgers from other great schools is challenging as well. Um, yeah. And just trying to find the right fit, uh, you know, it's it's marketing yourselves and, and showing, you know, the best parts of your program and, and making sure those kids, you know, if they are just looking at the top 20 schools, then maybe I'm not going to be able to yeah. have conversations with them. But ultimately, yeah. you know, the transfer portal really has changed some things. And people go to those schools and think they're going to be in the lineup 
and oh my gosh, maybe I'm fighting and I'm more likely playing seven or six sometimes. And if I went to a Rutgers, I could be playing three. Well, so it's, you know, it has changed some things for us. We have two really good transfers this year that are kind of feeling that effect right now. Well, that leads me into a bunch of questions. So I'm going to circle back to your story, which I want to hear how that is a, is a key uh, kind of uh, description of how you're recruiting with kids and relating with your story. But the transfer portal, do you think, what is your opinion on it? I mean, is it, kids can easily, you know, apply at this point, right? Can't kid, isn't it very, very easy for a kid to get pissed off and just transfer, try to transfer? Like their emotions can take the, the, can it take the best of them? I don't know. I'm back and forth on this. What do you think about it? Yeah, it's absolutely, I think it has its pros and cons and, um, you know, student athletes are very empowered with the transfer portal, but I think they also have to be careful as you were alluding to is that if you have one bad semester and you go enter the transfer portal, once you put your name in the transfer portal, yeah. your coach can pull your scholarship starting the following semester. So you may think, oh, I'm going to get tons of, um, you know, calls from other coaches once I enter, and maybe you don't. Yeah. Maybe you do. Maybe it wasn't the programs you thought you would. So you do have to be really careful. Um, and then in that process, you know, making sure it's, you know, you're ready to start it all over again in terms of finding the right fit. But I think sometimes it does help people that didn't make the best choice the first time around find a, a more appropriate you know, home yeah. and more play time. So I think, you know, we just, I saw um, our field hockey team just got a really good transfer, but it was a local Jersey person who yeah. went down to Wake Forest, wasn't happy and is back home in Jersey. Yeah. So I think it's, it's definitely got its pros and cons for players and coaches. So before we keep going into uh, the college room, tell me the story of your transfer situation at- Give me a little bit of your college history. I'm always curious about that, how it relates to other students and other kids here. Tell me. Sure. So I grew up, you know, I spent my high school years in Colorado. So we were in the mountain section, which is a very spread out section. And, you know, we're driving four hours um, at a minimum to get to like a sectional tournament. So it was a lot of travel and I wasn't able to play a bunch of tournaments to get points and things. But um, also I just didn't, you know, didn't have the awareness. So over in the Eastern section, you know, two hours of a drive, it doesn't seem so bad in traffic. But um, so when I committed, I actually went to the University of Iowa. My whole family, they had they had been Hawkeyes on my dad's side. Okay. And there were a lot of things I loved about Iowa. But ultimately, um, by my sophomore year, I wasn't playing my best tennis. We had had uh, the coach who had recruited me had left and gone to another school. Um, there were a few other factors. So I decided... I needed a break from tennis and I transferred back home to Colorado state university. And I actually didn't play tennis for a whole year. Um, and the coach called me when I was there and I was actually coaching a high school team and just being a normal college student and offered me a spot for the following two years. And when I went back to the team, I had taken all the pressure off myself okay. in terms of what spot I played in the lineup, what my record was. I was just so happy to be back competing again. And I played 10 times better because I wasn't putting that pressure on myself. Um, the external pressures actually probably aren't there as much as all these players imagine they are. It's really what the pressure that you put yourself under that can yeah. sometimes hold you back. Did so you... once I let that go, I, I had two great years and enjoyed it immensely. And, um, you know, was very happy. Did you feel pressure in Iowa being it's a family thing? Did you feel pressure that to live up to anybody's expectations or Uh, i think more so um pressure in terms of my lineup spot okay all the time you know because you know coaches good coaches are always right they should be trying to out 
recruit you. You know, if they're doing their job, they're getting better players every year. Sure. So um, in terms of doubles and singles and always, you know, if I lose today, am I going to get pulled out of the lineup or am I going to drop down? It was just a bunch of factors like that. And, and it, it wasn't my coaches or my teammates. It was really just me um, in my own head. So, How did the challenge system work over there at Iowa first? Was Could you – were lineups set? I mean, how did it work challenge-wise? Yeah, I think it wasn't just um, – you know, it wasn't just you lost and you got pulled out, but but there was definitely pressure. I mean, there were we had a lot of depth, and you knew that the player behind you was just as good, and the player ahead of you, you thought you could probably beat as well. But um, but being in that Big Ten conference, you know, none of the matches are easy. Yeah. So you're really trying, and I think for me, not having a ton of um, being able to play all those national tournaments all the time or more sectional tournaments. Um, I, I wasn't as seasoned as a competitor, so it took me a little while to get more match play under my belt. Um, and some of those players, you know, they, they, you know, 20 tournaments a year, easy. Yeah. So, How do you do that as a coach now? We'll circle back to you. Do you – it's a very fine line. You want your, your, your player to feel safe and confident, but you don't want them to feel that there's no challenge to them. They need – they right. need to feel sharp. So how do you balance that out as a coach yourself? Yeah, it's one of the trickiest parts, um, setting the lineup, because we know that the number one single spot can earn the same points as a number six player, yep. right? So ultimately, as a coach, you really want to put people in the position to be successful at every spot. Um, but like you said, I mean, but coach, we also want to win. So yeah. if we feel as though somebody's consistent consistently not able to perform we're probably gonna try to move them down and see if they can perform better in a lower spot and and potentially give that seven or eight person opportunity you know maybe if they are practicing really well and they're they're winning these challenge matches at practice we might flip it and we really try to have open conversations with our players so they understand why we're doing it and so they don't feel as though it's a punishment yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure they're putting a bunch of a bunch of stress on themselves, anyways. The, the, the more you put on it, it's it doesn't help. But you, again, you need them to perform. You don't need them to feel like, oh, uh, this is my spot. I'm fine. It doesn't matter. They need to know that they have to perform too. You need results, right? right? Well, and like any other sport, the hard thing is if you compare a basketball or a soccer, it's playing time minutes. Yeah. But if somebody starts out and they're not doing well, you can you can substitute. Well, in tennis, once they're in, they're in for the whole match. Okay. So you can't substitute mid-match, right? <laughs> so you're giving them this opportunity, and you see how they do. But um, it is, you know, once again, we try not to have them put pressure on themselves unnecessarily, but knowing that ultimately we're going to put people in that can be successful and, and earn points for us. Speaking of uh, points and, and, the new, and new formats, I mean, what do you like about new formats, about the way the doubles is played, how quick everything is? Do you... Do you miss the old way, the way you used to play, where it was full, right? I mean, what's the scoring system now for doubles? How they play? So, so for Division One, it's three singles matches, one set, a tiebreaker is six all, and no ad scoring. So it is incredibly fast. It drives me nuts. It, it doesn't give a lot of room for comebacks, right? Mm. If you get a quick start early on, um, that tends to benefit a doubles team. And the, I actually personally like the no ad scoring i did i didn't think i would like it as much as i do but it does make things play faster and there's a little more intensity and um focus i think those no ad scoring points and then whoever wins two out of the three of those matches earns one point for the doubles and then we send out six singles matches for the remaining um you know six points out of seven 
Now, what's the max? Is this so you could get more matches in, like, and play more matches each day? How many matches can you get in a year again? What's the max again? What is it, 24? What is it? So we, Division One can have 25 dates of competition. 25 dates. So, so right. a date of competition, if I have a one match against another team, right, we call those a dual match. If I have one dual match on a Saturday in the spring, that counts as one date. But what you'll see in the fall is if we go to an invitational played over three days that actually counts as one day of competition as well so there are some strange nuances to this sport can you play i mean i, I i've heard can you play two duels in a day have you are you doing yes. that you're booking them so yeah. do you play two duels in a day you know so a double header yeah. yet it still counts for one day to competition yeah so you could th theoretically probably play 30 matches if you wanted to right you you could play yeah so i just looked at a team i was looking online at at one of our upcoming opponents and they have 30 matches on their schedule but it's because they have a massive roster you know they probably carry 18 players yeah. so they're able to do a lot of those double headers right and, and have additional matches when is the uh i mean you started practice the semester starts when is the uh what's the first match of uh 23 is, have you already had one yet <laughs> So we've got we have our first match on Saturday. Oh, look at that! Um, yeah, so we're excited. We're we're hosting Bucknell on Saturday, and we play Binghamton on Sunday, and that'll kick us off. So it, typically, you know, our conference season starts in mid March. Uh, I think you know this year we fly out to Indiana and Purdue to open that up. So give us a a little view of your day. Say. I guess give us an off-season day and give us an in-season day. How's your schedule? How busy as a Division One coach are you for in-season and for off-season? Like, uh, give us sure. So, so starting in September, um, coaches can we have these dates that we're restricted by, but you we basically have what's called a twenty-hour season, which means in-season, and an eight-hour season, which is off-season. So we're we're able to be in our twenty-hour season about eight hours or eight weeks, sorry, in the in the fall. So September, October, and probably the early part of November, we're training six days a week, you know, two to three hours a day. We're in the gym two to three times a week. Um, and then this, that's very similar in terms of our practice schedule for the spring. So mid-January, we're starting two to three hours of practice all the way through the end of the year. The only time that they're really considered off-season is in that November date, November and through the time that they take finals. And that's different at every school, depending on if they're a trimester system, if they're a, a you know, quarter system, their academics. So for us, we really get about three weeks in November that are eight hours, which means we can only train them four hours of tennis and four hours of fitness a week. So that's our slower season, which also ramps up for us for recruiting for a college coach. So that's when we're looking at, there are some L2s, there's, uh, national indoors, winter nationals. So we travel um, in those months. Okay. And then also the summer. The summer is heavier recruiting, but we do have an exception where if anybody stays on campus, we can work with them, you know, as long as they're voluntarily requesting hits. Okay. So we do have players who choose to stay and do summer class and say, hey, I want to practice four times a week. And we say, great, we'll, we'll plan that out. How many recruiting trips do you think you do in a year? How many, how busy, how much are you on the road? Yeah, so, you know, that really depends on um, a couple of things, how many spots you have to fill yeah. for each year, and then also how big your budget is. So a lot of these schools that have big budgets, they're at, they're at twice as many tournaments as I am sure. um, because they have that, that travel budget. But I do also feel like when you're in the Northeast and you have access to tournaments that are very local, 
right? I mean, so many good tournaments in this area that we can go watch players and travel to. So the summer is definitely a, a heavier in terms of our recruiting, but, um, you know, we've also been now starting to travel more internationally to watch players. So it's all of that. So have you felt like you've gained more traction since you've started this and you are starting to compete with the bigger schools a bit in regards to getting some transfers, like you said, or getting some recruits? I mean, yeah, how far has it come? You think I, so? and it's, I think, too, it's the, you know, the relationship you have with your players is really important, but also kind of how you run your program is important because really the relationship that you have with your coach is probably you know, one of the biggest indicators of what kind of happiness you're going to have. If you if you end up having a bad relationship with your coach, you're not going to be very happy for four years. Um, same same goes for, <laughs> yeah. you know, your teammates. So making sure when you're in that recruiting process, don't just look at, you know, the rankings or, or the locker room, those types of things, because those are nice. But, but at the end of the day, those will indicate, you know, what you remember in four years. So we have, we've actually, we have two true freshmen that are really talented. Um, one from Atlanta, Georgia, and one's an international player from Eastern Europe. And then two transfers that, that are both very strong and will probably be in our top four. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm figuring, I mean, how many, how many solicit, how many solicitations are you getting? How many kids are reaching out to you now? I mean, do you get between, I get at least two a day. Okay, that's good. <laughs> I mean, I and some of those are mass emails, you know, where where they're either recruiting services, a lot of international recruiting services these days. They're trying to help international players find full scholarships to come to America. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of American kids, you know, some high school kids. The biggest thing is, if I could give advice to those juniors, is when you're sending emails, don't send emails to 200 coaches. Yeah, do that. Yeah, really good. try to narrow yeah. it down. Look at the roster. Look at things like, you know, UTR or the, the world tennis number or w w see where you would play, right? If, if your goal yeah. is to play, see where you would play in the lineup and, and email coaches that, that would appropriately, you know, you'd fit within their roster. Yeah, that's a great, great piece of advice. Would you suggest to the kid to actually do the research, like you said, know what your team is about. I mean, you, I mean, what have you gotten some great emails like that where the kid actually has done some research on your team and oh, knows yeah. something about I mean, it? It's the same thing as when you receive a blanket email, yeah. right? If yeah. I send out a personal email to a recruit after I've been, you know, to winter nationals where there are hundreds of players, if I send a personal one and I tell them, Hey, I watched your first round match. You played so-and-so. I thought mm -hmm. you did this. Well, I thought you could improve here. That's going to mean a lot more than me sending an email. That's just, you know, hi, Rutgers is great. Yeah. You know, the more the more information and the more um, specifics and, and if somebody knows something about Rutgers or, or they have a connection to the school or they're really interested, you definitely pay more attention. Yeah, take the time. I mean, I guess I always tell kids, like, take the time to know what someone may need. Everybody's always interested in what they get instead of what yes. the other person may need. Give them some value right. first. Find something that they're lacking. I don't know. Go. I mean, I, I with, in regards to work, I tell everybody, offer to work for free. Who cares? Just do anything they need. Say, you want something, I'm here to help. Whatever it may be, everybody's always interested in saying, like, oh, I want to reach out I to get? this person to see what they can help me with. Like, they got, they're too busy. They don't want to help you. you got to help them first. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Yeah. And, and into the recruiting process, it's, you know, I think it's – 
you always know when the parents are helping them, which is important. I think parents should have a, stay, a say, you know, they know their, their, their child, but ultimately the kids who take more ownership in the process and have conversations and they tend to, I think, find the better fit. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, a lot of it is just, even if you think a school is too high above you or too far below, have the conversation and maybe you'll be surprised one way or the other. Yeah. Right. Where I, I agree. Where do you think, how far can this team, I mean, this is so hard prediction wise, big 10 wise. So like, who's the best in the big 10 now? Where do you guys sit? Where do you guys think you can go in a, you know, it's so hard to tell, but it is hard. In a two or three it's hard, Steve, is because we all change so much every year. Yeah. There are programs that are pretty consistent. I mean, Michigan and Ohio state, and they've been very good the last couple of years. Um, but we have 50% of our team is new this year, yeah. right? So if 50% of my team is new, then when I go look at a Purdue, you know, Purdue's got a new number one, right? So yeah. it's still hard to tell. And and um, I do think this team, I have a really, I'm very optimistic. The way they performed this fall and their positivity and their work ethic is just really contagious. So I, I really have, you know, high hopes for this team, but I don't like to make those predictions either. Oh, sure. No, I get it. I get it. How uh, now? Some personal questions since I went and played over there. Are they moving the tennis facility over to Livingston campus? I mean, people may not know, but there's five different campuses at Rutgers. Are they moving it over? Is that what they're going to do? So, so we officially have full architectural plans awesome. to move our courts. Um, they will be on the Livingston side of campus. Great. Um, and they're going to be six brand new outdoor courts, lights, live streaming, scoreboards, um, a tennis building. So we're really excited. There's there. Don't quote me because I, the information changes to me all the time, but yeah. they should be ready for next year. That is awesome because I, you know, I went, I've gone back there several times, and I'm just so tired of the, you know, the football program cutting into the tennis. But it drives me crazy. We used to have, for the history of everybody, used to have two sets of courts, you know, upper level and a lower level, and now it's all gone. There's only a lower level. Half the shed is like for football crap, and like, um, you know, just. Please, it's like taking an arm and a leg away. Just get, just forget it. Just move it. Give it a good facility. It drove me crazy. Yeah, because... well, and, and too, in that same thing is I, so we are, one of the reasons that we also wanted to move it is we're going to let um, these courts be technically open to students and staff as well, which I think, you know, we, we hope they treat them well. But yeah. I want people to know that there are tennis courts, you know, promote the sport of tennis. Yeah. And then there'll be a greater connection when we have matches maybe they'll come watch us more, right? We'll get a bigger fan base. And um, I think just in terms of, you know, when you look at what's happened to men's tennis over the years and in the last couple of years, you know, our conference, Minnesota and men's Iowa teams have been cut. Um, So it's, and those are, you know, really good programs. So I think we have to keep growing tennis, you know, at the junior level and you're involved in all of that. But at the junior level, keep kids really interested in, you know, make and people still love the sport, so we keep growing it. Yeah, speaking of being involved, when we when I played on the team, we couldn't even use those indoor courts. The ones on Bush that had a bubble, there was three indoor yeah. courts. We weren't even allowed yeah. to use those. It was only for the students, which is great, but it would have been great if we could have practiced on campus. It would have been Those nice were some of the busiest courts. I only, my first year as an assistant, those were open before yeah. it collapsed, but those yeah. courts were busy all the time, 24-7. Jammed. There were three courts, and somebody ran it, you know, and, and would take hourly payments, but um, yeah, so I'm hopeful that that'll, that'll be the next phase. 
is an indoor facility, which there is a little space over there. So that's the next phase of planning, but I can't speak specifically to that yet. Mm -hmm. So how is, um, I guess my, my, my next question would be, how do you handle a situation? How, how, you know, here we have, you know, there's the great parent and there's the overbearing parent. Do you get that in college or is there enough of a buffer or do you get parents contacting you? Do you get that parent once in a while? How do you handle that? Or the is parents, it all the parents that you, you have committed to your team? Yes. So the first thing you have to do is you have to recruit. You, you you know, just like when you get married, like right? You, know, you have to look at the in-laws. When you recruit a player, you, you have to get to know the parents, right? So you know what kind of parents you're getting. Um, but we, we love parental support, um, but also in the recruiting process, just kind of even being very honest with them about, you know, you're sending us your, your child and we want them to be an adult and they can handle these conversations. If there's questions about tennis or playing time, that should be a conversation that they have with us. But I also tell parents, you know, if, if there's something going on with your daughter or their well-being, you know, they may not share with us because we're the coaches. Then if, if there's something going on that we might need to know about, you know, they have my cell phone number or anything like that. We love having parents travel, come to matches when they can. Um, but I think really it's setting a precedent early on and just communicating that in the recruiting process. Like, you know, we do not have a big communication pipeline system with the parents. You know, we want the, the student athletes to go to college to become adults. So. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, we only have a few more minutes, so it's been great, though, educational. What else would you tell our juniors? They want to get recognized by a coach. They want to, you know, whatever level they want to play. What are the – besides the yeah, so, obvious, no, what are the big great. things? So what I would say is yeah. there is a level of college tennis for almost everyone. You know, it may – not everybody can play Division One tennis, but there is Division One, Two, and Three. And if you love tennis and you want to play, I guarantee there's probably a spot for you on a team somewhere. Um, so that's one thing I would say is if it's your dream to play college tennis, I, I've coached at the Division Three level, and there's a lot of value in in that too. Um, so that's one thing. But also, you know, if you want to get recognized, pester us with emails. Yeah. I mean, we may miss one or two. We get a lot of emails a day, but. But don't be afraid to keep reaching out. If you don't hear from the first one, send another one. Um, you know, videos or, or, you know, we're restricted in some ways of phone calls with dates by the NCAA. But call us or, you know, respond to our emails quickly. Those kinds of things. And play tournaments. Play a lot of tournaments. Yeah. That's one of the biggest things. Give me uh, a couple of tech, uh, uh, just technical things. What's the blackout period? When can you talk to a student? What is all? Give me a couple of those so kids know. So we can start communicating with players um, June 15th leading into their junior year. Okay. Now, that date has changed so many times in the last couple of years. I hope I'm correct, but I'm 99% certain. Um, and then it, it's different, though, too, in terms of when can you have off-campus contact. That happens, the I think, August going into your senior year. Okay. But, um, but you can always call a coach and... You know, if you're if you're ahead of that date and you didn't realize it, the coach can say, "Hey, thanks for calling. I can't quite talk to you yet, but I'll you know write your name down and I'll give you a call when that date opens up." Okay. Uh, but you can always you know send an, us an email so we have you on our you know the radar. But your junior and senior year, that's those are you know really big recruiting years, and don't be afraid to put yourself out there. How many texts go out midnight like January fifteenth? I, I 
You know, a lot of students tell me they get reached out by coaches like the midnight of that day. So they've probably set up a text, right? Yeah. And so that's my thing is the most important kids on my list, I personally call that day. I don't, I don't like to just send a text at midnight, but everybody's different. Every program does it differently. Um, I like to call those kids that I'm really interested in, especially, you know, the local Jersey kids if I can. Okay. Uh, so... Oh, here's one. Yeah, Make sure their information, your contact information is up to date on things like tennis recruiting or anywhere <laughs> else that you might have a profile because that's where coaches are going to go grab that information to reach out to you. So, so a lot of the stuff is just not updated? You, 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 get, you check oh, it out. Yeah. Oh, I've had, I've, you know, emailed a kid for a whole year and then a, a player reaches out to me their senior year. I said, well, I've been emailing you for a year. And they go, oh, that's not the right email. <laughs> said, well, no wonder. So, aye, so, aye, and aye. sometimes it's a parent's email and it's old, or if they don't check that, then that's important. Ay, ay, ay. A simple email <laughs> thing. No one's getting a hold of me, mom. Uh, no one's interested in me. Yeah, why, why is no one calling me and texting me at midnight? Oh, my so. God. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for talking to me, Steve. Listen, Hillary, it was great. Uh, I. I Boy, I, boy, I, I need to get back there more too and see how how the team is doing. And you're Bucknell yeah, this weekend we, at home, so right? I really, I think you know the level of our program this year. I'm really excited that, and also they're just great student athletes overall yeah. in general. They're great people. They're great humans, which is what it's really about. But um, I think if people want to come, you know, we play our home matches indoors at East Brunswick Racquet Club. Yeah. And and then you know when weather permits, we move outside. But the level of tennis is great. We get a lot of great teams in. And we, Always welcome people to come. Yeah, what time is the match on Saturday? Saturday? Saturday is a 4 o'clock match four. against Bucknell, and then Sunday is 3 p.m. against Binghamton. 3 p.m. against Binghamton. Four. Everybody, get over there. East Brunswick, yeah, it's 20 minutes away, man. Show up. Watch yes. some tennis. Get, we need a... We need a little cheering out there. We need some crowds, please. Yes, yes. Awesome. And also, though, if you can make it, we live stream everything on Play Site. Yeah, so, that's awesome. There you go. Hillary, thanks Thank for the you, time. Thank you, Steve. Best awesome. of luck to you. Best of luck. Great to talk to you. I'll talk to you soon. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Hope you liked the podcast. Please share with your friends, anybody that you know, anybody that's into tennis, anybody that's into bettering themselves, share it.